Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. The premise of our show is, as we're living our lives, very rarely do we know that when pivotal moments are happening, the magnitude of what they will be in the future. But in hindsight, we can look back and really highlight those moments. In today's episode with Nigel, you are going to hear about somebody who has consistently set goals and never backed down from setting another goal after he's accomplished certain successes. Tune into his story of how he went from model, photographer, to TV show host, and an all-around great guy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I am honored to have Nigel Barker with me. Uh, Nigel has a phenomenal story and very fascinating. I'm super excited to highlight uh, all the things that he's been able to do and where he's at. Um, probably most infamously known for his modeling, photography, and then helping host and judge on the TV show, America's Next Top Model. So Nigel, thanks so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You betcha. So I, if I didn't start at this point in the story, I feel like I would miss something. But your mom uh, won a crown for, for a title. So talk a little bit about having a mom that had had some exposure there and maybe what that impacted you with growing up. So my mom um, won Miss Sri Lanka back in, I think, 1967 or around that time period. And um, actually, funnily enough, had the crown then taken away from her because she wasn't 100% Sri Lankan. Um, and back then in the Miss World competition, you had to be 100% from the country. And she, they, my grandfather was English and, and, my, and Portuguese and my, my grandmother was Sri Lankan. So she didn't, she didn't qualify, it turned out, after the fact. And they didn't know this, they didn't do their, their due diligence beforehand. So she did the whole competition, one, and they had it taken away several <laughs> days later. Um, but it was, you know, in, in a lot of people's eyes, that was, you know, she was the winner at that point. Yeah, but she would then move to the UK from Sri Lanka, in large part because she was so upset about what had just happened with my grandmother and my, my aunt, and um, became a model in the 60s and early 70s, a singer, an actress, and, um, and really helped shape, you know, that side of my family and look after them and um, put food on the table and, and you know, and really worked incredibly hard, to be honest with you. It was very difficult yeah. working in the sort of early 70s, late 60s as a, as a woman of color from Sri Lanka. Um, <laughs> in the modeling industry, there were very few jobs. It was very stereotyped. But I kind of grew up with this woman who was very hardworking. Um, you know, my grandmother lived in the, in the house with us. My aunt lived in the house with us for many years, too. And, you know, I got to see how these women interacted with one another. I saw how hard they worked. I saw what yeah. they, my grandmother was an incredibly accomplished woman herself, but when she came to England, basically had to start from scratch because no one would hire her because if she was from Sri Lanka and unless they were going to give her a secretarial job and she'd had executive jobs as a woman in, in the country of Sri Lanka. And yeah. so it was, yeah, I grew up with this, these sort of powerful women in my life. And, um, you know, and I, that, that sort of helped shape, shape my life. And it also kind of made me see a different side of the modeling industry. It made me realize that although it was, you know, glitzy and glamorous, it could also be, you know, <laughs> a, a ways to a means. And so I think, you know, and I realized just for them, it was a, it, it got them out of their country, it moved them to another part of the world, it, 
she met my father and all this sort of stuff. And so obviously when, I, when the opportunity came along for me later on, um, you know, that was uh, something that I thought, oh, let me just try this. Let me just see what this is like. And it wasn't that I necessarily wanted to be a model or anything. Yeah. So kind of parlaying right into that, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to go to, you know, university, or I'm going to go to school. And your mom says, well, maybe I'll put your name into a uh, show and we'll see what comes from it. So talk a little bit about uh, that, that show and uh, the ending result that came from that. Well, it's funny because I was actually just talking to my mother over the weekend and she brought it up again uh, <laughs> to, my, to my children, her grandchildren, and, and said, you know, it's funny, I, when your father was 17, 18 years old, unbeknownst to him, I entered him into a modeling competition because I used to because she used to love um, this show called The Clothes Show. And she heard that they were running a modeling competition. And she said that she ran the, you know, she, they, she entered this photograph in and they said, yes, please have him come along. Apparently I, I showed up there. I remember showing up actually. And they had me walk one time and they pretty much said, you're in the show. And so I was like, wow, okay, that's cool. That, I didn't, and I, to be honest, was you know when you're a kid that age, you don't you take a lot for granted. You don't yeah. realize the process or how, you know whether you were lucky or not lucky necessarily. You don't often appreciate everything at at the time. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, I, obviously ironic because I went on to become a judge of America's Next Top Model. But at that particular time, I actually got my own break from a televised modeling search in the yeah. UK in the late eighties. And you know, it, it it was kind of pivotal for me because. I was meant to be going to medical school. Um, I was, um, you know, was studying biology, chemistry, physics, and math, and had done for three years already. And I was all of a sudden thought, well, okay, instead of trying to do a military scholarship, which I was trying to do like a naval scholarship to, to actually study medicine, so I could, you know, get my pay my way through, which would have been seven years plus three years or four years in in the service after the fact, which was like an eleven year sort of, yeah. you know, ahead of me. I perhaps thought, well, if I do some modeling, if I make some money, then maybe I can pay my own way and I don't have to do that, which, you know, although I didn't necessarily, you know, wasn't against going into the Navy because my, I came, come from a military background. My father and my grandfather are both in the Navy, that okay. um, I bet potentially could, you know, pay my own way and do, and, you know, and do what I want and, and see the world a little bit because I'd lived yeah. a pretty par parochial life up until then. I'd been at a boarding school. I, I didn't really have a great grasp of the world necessarily. And I thought, well, this would help shape me a little bit and, you know, make, make my eyes be a bit, little wider. And I did one year uh, modeling and it went very well. Yeah. So my parents and I agreed, well, you know, cause legally in England, basically legally, it's sort of officially rather probably is a better word. I was able, you're able to do two year gap year sabbatical before going back to college. And so I thought I'll take that second year and I did well again, second year. And then my parents said, okay, it's time to go back to school. And I remember literally sort of having this big sort of showdown with them where I'm like, you know what, I don't want to go. And they were like, well, you have to, it's time. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go. And I, I can continue doing this. And they were like, no, you can't continue doing that. It's not a job and you have to go and do, you know, become a real job, you know, to become a doctor yeah, and get a real yeah. job and all the rest of it. And, and I just sort of thought, wow, you know, I, I'd had a taste of modeling. And that's why I always say, parents, beware what you let your parents, your kids do. <laughs> because I had, you know, enjo really enjoyed this past two years. I've got to travel the world. I was meeting, you know, wonderful, extraordinary people, beautiful yeah. um, people too. And, and as a young man, you are sort of starred, starry eyed <laughs> about it all. Um, you know, getting to dress in cool clothes, getting to go to great parties that I've never would have been invited to otherwise and make good money doing it all. And, yeah. and you, know, you were sort of living this glamorous life, which is 
very tempting at that age. And I, and I sort of thought, well, no, I want to stay doing this. I don't really want to go and listen to people's ailments. Actually, <laughs> it's not really, not really sounding that good. Right. And, um, my parents sort of said, well, kind of thing, we're going to cut you off a little bit. And I was, you know, thought, well, okay, I can manage because I've actually made some money. So yeah. I, I um, kind of went off on my own and I moved to it Italy um, and I started living in Italy for the, for the next couple of years. And you know, that really was a, a big change in my whole life and my career as I sort of started to model. Yeah. So I want to dive into that a little bit. I think for a lot of people, it's really difficult for them to make decisions when I would say key people in their life don't agree with the decision they're about to make. So, you know, for you, obviously you had had some success, uh, you know, in the modeling industry and you're kind of going against the wishes of, you know, probably two relatively key people in your life at that time. So how did you have the confidence to make that choice? You know, it, it's a lot of it is just, you know, if I look back before then, you know, I had never really wanted to study medicine. Mm. I had never really wanted to particularly study science. Yeah, um, I was. I suffered from the fact that I was neither great or or bad at anything. Mm. I was sort of good at everything. Yeah. So what that means, without trying to trying to blow my own horn here, <laughs> is that when I did my school, when I was at school, my grades were pretty consistently good across the board. Yeah. They weren't great. They weren't, I wasn't the top student, but I, I, and I wasn't a middle student, but I was a sort of three quarters up the way student all the way across in all subjects, which meant that it was quite hard because in, in England, the system is, is that you study everything up until you're 16. And then at 16, you have to actually specialize and pick three or four, if you're sort of lucky or smart enough to do it, four subjects. And um, and then you specialize. And so you're already halfway along to go to college because then when you, once you specialize, there's only so much you can do. And up right. until when I was 16, what I had wanted to do was actually become a lawyer or, um, and, or study English literature. Um, and, and I was a Latin scholar. So I used, to, I used to do Latin and ancient Greek, Tacitus and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, I, and I loved art history. So it was all actually in the arts. And yeah. I was, so what happened was, is that I got my grades back and my father looked at all my grades and my father said, well, we don't have a doctor in the family. We already got someone doing accounting. <laughs> we got someone doing insurance. We got a finance guy. We've got somebody who's doing art and my, you know, and he said, but we don't have anyone who's a doctor. You, you have good grades in the sciences. You should do become a doctor. And I remember that summer. And I remember when he said it, I was having such a great summer. And I was on vacation. Yeah. I literally just went, yeah, sure. And I didn't want to talk about it. So yeah, sure, that sounds good. And I didn't think about my life as a kid doesn't, the kid doesn't think about, think about like the next 24 hours maybe, but I, I wasn't thinking about the next 24 years. Yeah. You know, so it, it was, and I said, you know, with that in mind, I think finally when I got the opportunity and I realized that this world that I had never seen before, it was like a Pandora's box of, of like, wow, how look at this crazy world that's out there that I had no idea of. I've been at a boarding school all my life. So it was that gut reaction that I sort of thought, well, perhaps it's time that I took charge of my own direction in life. Yeah. And I, and I, when I was told that I needed or had to go back and I realized that there was an option mm. and because I had a bit of money in my pocket and because I was now hanging out with adults, yeah. you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I was being treated like an adult because sometimes I would be, out with 
people who were much older than me. I remember going to New York for the very first time in 1991, and I must have been 18, maybe yeah. just 18, I think 18, 19 years old. And, you know, I was living at the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, which was a crazy place at the time. <laughs> and, and I remember we, I was asked to go to dinner and I went to dinner and I, I was at a table with five people, two of which were um, Diana Ross and uh, Robert De Niro. Wow. You know, and, and it was just and it was just me and my agent and some other person who I can't remember who they were anymore. But, uh, <laughs> but it was a sort of a, and I kind of remember thinking, like, wow, like, yeah, this is really cool. And, yeah. um, you know, about, you know, don't forget, this was 30 years ago, right? So at the same yeah. time, they, they weren't necessarily icons necessarily at that point, but they were big, well known acting in, you know, actors and, and, and you know, rock stars, if you like, in their yeah. time, in that moment. Yes. You know? and, I, and so, but it was, but it was still this sort of moment where I'm like, okay, I had this weird life right now. Do I do this or do I? Go back and roll the dice on what it could be, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Now, as you're getting into, you know, the modeling, uh, you know, I think you probably gain confidence with each and every shoot and, you know, each and every opportunity. But is there one or two of them that really stand out to you in the early years that you're like, okay, I, I'm good at this and, and it was a bigger confidence boost than maybe some of the others? I mean, there were certainly jobs where you were like, okay, this is a really cool job, or yeah. I can't believe I got cast for this. Um, yeah. But there was also far more from my perspective of sort of imposter syndrome. Mm. Most of the time, I actually yeah. felt that I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And, that, and that I probably wasn't worthy. And that the clock was ticking. And that I wasn't going to be in vogue very long. And that this was, you know, and I wasn't ripped enough. I wasn't, I was too tall or I was too big because I'm six, four and I'm a big guy, I played rugby and, yeah. and, and actually, you know, that worked for a period of time when I first started modeling, because I was, you know, I modeled in the late eighties, early nineties, but then come sort of 93, 94, 95, for anyone who's familiar with the fashion industry, uh, you know, the world of heroin chic, if, as if heroin could ever be chic, but heroin chic, <laughs> androgyny, you know, this whole waif model kind of vibe came along. And there was nothing I could do to make myself short, small, or androgynous. So <laughs> I, I just was like, eh, what am I going to do? But I still love the industry. So I, yeah. I was always, I felt like, eh, this isn't really kind of working for me. And I, and I was trying to be perhaps something that I wasn't, and I was never really fulfilled. Mm. But there were jobs that, you know, to, to your point, you know, for example, I remember one job where I got booked in Paris to do Chanel. And um, we, we got to do a show as well. And and I, I was one of only four men and sort of 25 women. And the women were legends. I mean, they yeah. were, you know, Claudia Schiffer, Christy Turlington, Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, uh, Nadia Orman, uh, Megan Douglas. I mean, the list goes on and on. It was literally yeah. a who's who. Um, and I was asked to carry Naomi Campbell on my shoulders for this thing with my, you know, Karl Lagerfeld. And, and I was just was like, what is happening here? This is like... <laughs> I, I'm, am I really in this room with these people? And you know, I kept sort of thinking, pinch yourself, like, this isn't real. You're not one of them. Wow. You're, not, you're, you're on the, and, and, and I also sort of thought, well, there isn't really a lifespan here at this job. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, you know, so once I got sort of six years into it, I thought, well, I've spent a really long time doing this. I've done really well. I've traveled the world. And by this time, I had met my wife, Chrissy, who was not my wife, she's my girlfriend, but I, and she was doing very well, Vogue, Vogue covers, Vogue, Italian Vogue, and all this great stuff. And, you know, and 
I was sort of chasing her around the world. And I, I thought, well, if I'm going to continue modeling, you know, that's not going to work because, you know, it takes me in too many different directions. Also, it's not a long term thing. And also, how do I keep this girl? Because yeah. I, I need to be I need to be successful. I need she's not going to stay with me if if I'm some sort of, you know, two bit model that's not really that successful. I need to I need to get myself a real job or I need to get myself a job that I can, you know, start to really make something yeah. for myself in her life. So that, that was a part of, you know, as I moved into the other side of the camera, I thought, well, let's not throw away the seven, eight years I've, I have under my belt, all the people I've met, the contacts I've met, and maybe I can translate it into another thing within this industry. And something I didn't say about my schooling before was that when I was doing the sciences, in order to keep myself in my art world that I love so much, I took yeah. on as a side class, I took um, pattern cutting, dressmaking, tailoring, weaving, and I was actually making clothes. And um, through my brother who had a business at the time, I was able to sell clothes on the high street in England um, wow. and, and make money out of it. And I actually designed a hat and I had t-shirts and stuff like that. So I, um, very similar to what my son personally is doing these days himself, but it yeah. was, um, you know, it's, it's funny, um, but I, I always had an interest in, in fashion. So it, I, I, you know, and I had a creative edge to me and, and, I, and I was taking pictures at school as well. So I kind of like decided to kind of get back into my creative side and um, become a photographer. And that's what I did in the mid nineties. So before we jump into being in photography, I want to hit on that idea of the imposter syndrome, uh, because I think that, you know, most people listening are not going to be, you know, a gorgeous human being like yourself. That's, you know, been on the cover of Vogue's and things like that, but everyone can relate to that to some degree, right? You are getting even outside affirmations, but yet you still internally don't necessarily feel like you're worthy or you're, you know, at that level. So how for you, were you able to continue to show up, you know, shoot after shoot, even though internally you were having some of those kind of wars, if you will? Well, I mean, I think, that, you know, at the end of, at the, end of the day, I, I grew up with a strong family around me and I was yeah. confident in who I was. Yeah. But, but I, I, it's also, I'm also keenly aware of being realistic. Mm. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm pessimistic. Yeah, right, um, right. But I am a realist. I'm yeah. a sort of optimistic realist in yeah. life. You know, as in, I, I look at the upside, but then I look at what I'm seriously capable of. Yeah. And you know, if you're sitting there at a bench press, you know, and you slap on 45 to either side and you know you can do it, but then you see the guy next to you and he's got sort of another three 45s on each one and you're like, oh, God damn it, I want to do that too. You know, the reality is it's, it's just not going to happen, at least not today. Yes. You know, it doesn't yep. mean it may never happen, but yep. it's not going to happen today. And you can have dreams, but you have to find your way there. And likewise, in this industry, I knew that I had dreams of wanting to stay in the business mm. and that I wanted to you know, work with and be with my wife, who was a successful model, and I didn't yeah. want to throw it away. So it was like, well, what can I do within this business yeah. that would fulfill that that same world? And and in many ways, you know, certainly jumping ahead here, going on to top model, yeah. and creating television shows, I was able to sort of do both. I was yeah. able to both be on TV, so in front of the camera, yeah. but work the camera, taking pictures for the camera. So yes. it, it was a, it was both things that I knew how to do. It was like this new career of mine being a photographer and then my old career of being a model. So you're all of a sudden on stage, on set, looking at camera, talking to camera, 
but then you're taking pictures and showing people what you're doing. So yeah. it's both things coming together. So it's sort of, you know, one of the things when you, you, you know, and, and so by doing that, and by, I guess too, there's a truth to, you know, in order to become an expert at anything, it takes 10,000 hours. Yeah. You know, there's that expression. So you know, when you first start doing something, it's not that you're an imposter, but if you get very quick success, you sort of are an imposter. Yeah. You actually don't know what you're doing. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, just because you're good or, or you're lucky or you know the right people or whatever it might be, yep. you know, you still have stuff to learn. And, and one goes on in life learning that more and more, right? That you, the older you get, the more you realize, the less you know, that type of thing. You know, so yep. I, and I, it's, it's, but then you get over it and you realize that and you're okay with that and you, and it becomes a good thing and you become excited by that. But when you're young, you get, you're you sort of can be, crippled by the concept that you know so little or you think you know everything and you know and that gets in the way too but yes. I was always one on, on a big learning curve and you know I and I remember just sort of thinking I want to know more I want to learn more I want to mm. get and I, and, and I felt like I had done as much as I could in modeling yeah and I you know I was and I was never the, necessarily the most coordinated I was necessarily the best dancer I was never the best yeah had the best rhythm you know things that are useful in modeling and yeah. so you're sort of like well I can't do that necessarily very well. Yeah, um, I could try, I could struggle, or people, you know, they might just like me, but I don't want to be, you know, cast second. I want to yep. be cast first, mm. and I want to be, I want to be the best, and I yeah. want to be super, and I want to be successful. I want to be actually super successful. I want to really do that, and I want to do all these different things. I want to write books. I want to, and I want to do whatever I want to do. I want to do it, and I yeah. sort of want to. And so, how do I make go along making that happen? And I got to set a course. And I've got to think about that and I've got to be a little bit out of the, you know, what's happening in the next 24 hours and what's happening in the next 24 years and yes. what does that look like? And so that started to kick in in my sort of mid 20s, basically. That's great. So to your point, you, you transition from being the model to being on the photography side. So you had you had made a lot of connections, um, but how did you parlay the connections into making that a sustainable business for you? Well, I mean, first of all, as a, as a, as a young photographer, you know, really at the very first stages, well, you know, I, I literally met my wife in Milan in 94. And that day I met her, you know, I had a camera which I'd bought and I had it in my, my room. And I said, oh, do you mind if I take some pictures of you? And she was like, oh, sure. You know, like kind of that was cute. And, and, and I remember being, putting her up against the wall in Milan and the light was there and I took some shots of her and, and you know, and was excited by them. And, and I thought, God, this is so fun to do this. You know, I've not yeah. been and, I, and, and she was literally one of the very first people I photographed that, in a way that <laughs> I felt like I could do this. Yeah. And I kind of thought, hmm, this is something. And, and, I, and I was living, and it's funny, if you ever seen Melrose Place where everyone lives around that sort of square and they're all in that building, that's how it was like in Milan. <laughs> and all the people in the building were models, every single person. And they, all, and they were like literally a hundred of them. Wow. 100 models in this building and all living around the courtyard all from all <laughs> over the world common language was english although there were several other you know languages going on yeah um but that was the common language and i you know i was around them all and when they started seeing that i was taking pictures other models because mo models are always especially young models who are starting up are always desperate for, for new pictures new headshots yes. new work and and they need to show what they can do yeah. And so I started taking pictures of everyone in this building. And I, I suddenly realized too, when, as people would come back from jobs that they were getting that day, they were coming back and they would have 
because you, you'd have a professional person do your hair, if you, you know, from a, as a female model, and then you'd have a professional person do your makeup. Yeah. So they would come back looking amazing with hair and makeup done by the world's top people, you know, right. the cover of a magazine type of yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and I would say, look, to everyone, I put a word out, before you wash your face, before you go and take a shower, come see me, knock on the door, give me, send me a message. And by the way, this is pre-cell phones. So <laughs> that's how old I am. It was pre-cell phones. And they weren't just running me. They had to sort of call me on a payphone and I'd have to pick it up or something. And, and you know, I literally show up and knock on the door yeah. um, in mid-90s. And um, I'm like, and let me take some pictures of you and I'll give them to you. You'll, I'll just give them to you. And, and you know, you'll get some great stuff. Because a lot of times when models do jobs, they don't actually get to see the pictures. And or when they see the pictures, they don't like them because yeah. they didn't pick the ones that they liked or were good at for them. So when they're by doing this, they were sort of guaranteed to get some pictures. Also, if you shoot a job in Milan and then you have to go back to New York, you may never see them because back then there was no internet either. Right? Yeah, so right. You, you have to get the magazine. So you have to go to the shop and pick up the magazine and you relied on your agency sending it to you in, yeah. in you know, by air and it right. would arrive. So you're talking months and months and months later to actually finally see the picture versus yeah. if I took the picture, you might see it tomorrow. So yeah. it's sort of like, wow, this is super cool. So I built my portfolio by using my contacts, by using all these models around me. And then I decided to do that all around the world. I followed yeah. my wife and I started charging. So originally I started charging people just for the roles of film because I used to shoot film back then. Yeah. Then, then I, once that became good, I started charging people sort of, 50 bucks for a roll of and the roll of film then it was 100 and then you know what happened was the agencies themselves said god we really like these pictures you're shooting for all these models can we hire you to become the agency test photographer yeah. and, I, and, I, and what happens i moved to new york and i became the official test photographer for several agencies including wilhelmina click models ford models um and eventually click model management hired me to shoot their entire agency in this wow. one book and um, that was a sort of pivotal moment because it got a lot of attention. And it, that book was sent out by that agency to every client in the world. And a lot of people were like, wow, this is a really cool thing that you guys did. And because the entire book was consistent when we named it Clicksilver, they put on a big exhibition of my pictures for the agency to promote the agency. But also I took all the shots. So there was a lot of clients there. That's all the people who were booking the models came to this party and they were like, well, who shot it, it was me. And I ended up getting all these jobs. It was a sort of a pivotal moment. Yes. So something that was interesting uh, to me, probably someone you would know, Peter Hurley. Uh, I had him on the on the show and he talked about, you know, you would think that going from being the model to being the photographer would be a pretty easy transition. But he goes, it's a whole different world. You know, it's like playing offense versus defense in sports. It's like, yeah, you understand it, but it's different. But he said that one of the things that made him uh, get better at it was the fact that he understood being on the other side of the camera, right? So he knew how to make the environment fun. And something that was interesting that I learned from you was you think about not only what are you seeing, but what's the person that's getting the photo taken seeing, right? Are they looking at a crappy brick wall behind them? Are they looking at 19 people staring at them? So talk a little bit about how you make the environment fun, because definitely that parlays into what you're able to capture within the people you're you know, no, no, without, without a doubt. And yes, I, I mean, I, I know Peter, we've met each other a few times over the years, you know, it's not someone who I come across that often, but I know of him, I know how he's been very successful in what he does. And I know that he used former model and all the rest of it. 
Um, and, and he's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that you know you you realize is that because you were a model, you sympathize with their position in, in the picture. And so that makes you very popular with the models because you know you kind of you know understand where they're coming from. So you know if if for example I'm shooting a model and it's freezing cold and you're asking her to wear very little, I will often take off my jacket too and just be wearing my t-shirt to be in the cold element myself because if I can't handle it then how can right. they? You know and, and, and so it's sort of it just to be kind of not to be ridiculous, but to a point where obviously I wouldn't put on a swimsuit if they're wearing a swimsuit necessarily, but but it's sort of like there's an element of like understand what you're dealing with so that you can, yeah. you know, because you if, if you do, then that person realizes it and then they're going to give you more of themselves. They're going to be more volunteering of, of, of their full attention and of their full emotion and everything. And, um, you know, and everyone, you know, fashion photographers are different and how they deal with their subjects and how they provoke reaction out of their subjects, you yeah. know, and certainly I've learned a lot from a lot of great photographers like Avedon and people who, you know, Avedon's well known for a lot of his white walled shots and, and very simple backgrounds and what have you. And, but that's not because he was necessarily shooting in a studio or he wanted it to be really simple. He wanted the background to be simple, but he would often erect the white wall directly in the environment of the person he's photographing. So if it was a farm worker, you know, if you ever saw the behind the scenes of some of his shots, like in, you know, in the West and what have you, he, he literally erect a white wall in the middle of a, in the farmland in, in the field of hay, you know, so the farmer will be looking out at a field that he's so used to seeing, yet he was looking at a white, you know, as he was shooting it, he was looking at a white wall that was behind him. So it looked like a photo studio. Yeah. Um, so it's a kind of brilliant way of making something look very sterile in a, in a studio environment type of vibe, you know, that you would get that looks very portrait, but the person right. actually standing in there who would, if you put him in a studio, would feel like a fish out of water and not right. be chill and relaxed. Instead, is looking at exactly what they always look at every day, um, which yeah. is their, you know, the field, the, the, the you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that, so that was pretty smart of him to do that. So I've often used those sorts of things. But then, you know, that's if you're shooting real people. If you're shooting models yeah. and stuff, you know, that's also part of part of the course is that they're going to have people fussing over them, and they're going to, you know, and sometimes people like that. Sometimes people like a circus. They want to have all kinds of people running around them and making a big fuss and and they want to perform and they want yeah. to perform for an audience and if there's no audience then they don't want to perform then it's gone but some people like very intimate settings and sometimes when it's just you and that and the subject then they feel secure and they let their guard down and more you get more out of it absolutely so as we transition in there's this show that's starting america's next top model and you I would love to say from day one, when you showed up, you're like, oh, this could be a, you know, multi-season, you know, over a decade long or over 10 season thing, but you had one episode and then you had to wait for a callback. So talk a little bit about how that came to be and uh, the, the process of getting. So actually, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little different than that, the, yeah, the okay. actual process. So first of all, I was never a part of season one. So I, I, season one came and went and I watched it like many people in the fashion industry and thought it was fascinating, hilarious, brilliant. And I happened to know a few of the people that were in it, you know, and I had come across Tyra before, but I knew Jay Manuel and I knew a guy called Nole Marin, yeah. who I'd been working with quite a lot as a stylist. And when they were shooting season two, I got the call saying from Nole saying, they're looking for photographers for season two, you should put your book up, it would be fun. Um, and go and see the producers, they're doing a casting at Jay's house, uh, go by and just, you know, chat and see them. and. You know, see, see if they'll book you for one of the jobs, one of the one of the episodes. 
And I went and did that. And you know, I didn't hear back for quite a while, actually, like six weeks. And I thought, oh, well, that, that didn't pan out, but it was, you know, worth a try. And that would have been fun. You know, but I never thought I was going to get on television, to, you know, on a show like that. It was a sort of fun, super successful kind of show already, even though it was a yeah. small show on, on UPN, a network that doesn't exist anymore. But it was, I was like, okay, this is kind of, you know, a bit of, a bit of fun. Um, and then I got a call out of the blue. And one of my assistants at the time said, Nigel, there's a phone for you. It's, I, th I think it's those producers from that show you were looking at. And I, and I was like, really? Wow. And I picked up the phone. They're like, listen, so sorry we're taking so long to get back to you. <laughs> but the reason being is that we had really liked your interview and it kept going up the ranks, up the ranks, up the ranks. And, you know, whereas we wanted you for one episode, you know, the people at the network and, and we as well, we're really considering you as a permanent fixture on the show, as a permanent judge throughout the whole season. Yeah, and I was, yeah. and they were like, "Would you entertain that?" And I was like, "Wow, wow, um, <laughs> hmm. that's certainly more than I was bargaining for." And I'm like, I, I, "I'm not sure that I can even clear my schedule because I've got other commitments." And when, right. when is this? And what are you talking about? And what is it going to mean? And, and what you know, what is that? How many days a week? And where are we going to be? And yeah, you know, yeah. all those things. And um, and actually, I also thought because I kind of knew that because you know, a few people had said to me, and certainly in the industry there were a lot of people who were sort of um you know not necessarily 100 percent behind a tv show like america's next top model yeah certainly in the high ends of fashion because you know they take themselves very seriously they it's an art form you know we you know it's very highly guarded secrets about what we do at you know at these fa fancy magazines and these fancy you know couture houses and all the rest of it and perhaps a show like top model might be too commercial and a bit of a sellout so yeah. I, it was something I had to really think about and be like, hmm, you know, this is something I want to do because I'd, I'd been very lucky and I had a good run so far and I'd done some pretty cool work. Yeah. And I was kind of on the right trajectory for, to, for doing some really great stuff. And at the same time, I, I thought, wow, you know, I could feel there was a shift in the world. I yeah. could tell that, that, that things were just moving in a different way. I, I knew that reality television had been very successful in the UK. It was really just emerging in the US at the time. But in the yeah. UK, it had been around for two, three years already. And shows like sort of Ibiza Uncut and weird shows like this, which showed the behind the scenes of things about islands and what have you, had been crazy successful. And I thought, well, you know, the world's changing. I think people need to know more. And, I, and, and mm. you know, I'd like to break down this world and show people what I was doing. And they help, you know, explain this world to people. And so why not? Well, let me give it a go. Let me yeah. give it a shot. And, um, you know, one season turned into 18. So, you know, I ended up doing it for pretty much a generation and over a decade. So yeah, it was, it was quite something. Yeah. So just talking about that, I mean, once again, the show just grows with popularity. So, you know, talk about the beginning stages of that because it was so, it was, it was a new idea. It was a new type of a show, but by the, you know, later seasons of it that you had been doing, I mean, it was a household item for pretty much everybody. So talk a little bit about just even maybe the way people in the industry looked at the show, if maybe that changed over time or their perception of you, you know, facilitating on that type of show changed. Well, you know, as I mentioned, it was on, I was on for 18 seasons. And so that is literally not 18 years because we, although right, yeah. we did one season at the beginning, we ended up doing two seasons a year. So, but it, it spanned almost 11 years that I was on the show. 
Um, so literally an entire generation grew up with this show on television talking about fashion and modeling and what have you and, and photography. And for yeah. many people, it was the very first time they'd seen anything like it and certainly got a good taste of the behind the scenes. And for all those people who never thought they were worthy of Vogue, all of a sudden, they, you know, they were listening to experts from fashion and, and what have you. And, you know, and, and when we first got started, as we were a new show and it was quite commercial and we were on a small network, you know, our sponsors were very small and our, and our sponsors were also quite commercial. So even when the sponsors got bigger, they ended up being sponsors that perhaps aren't high fashion or even really fashion at all, but really more sort of chains and store, you know, big stores like Walmart and um, and what have you. And, you know, which were fantastic because they really supported and got the show going. And they also understood mass, which is what television is. Now, TV is not for some small little audience, but TV is for trying to get millions of people to watch something. Yes. That's, that's the model of television. So it's, you know, they understood that and that was their model too, right? So yeah. you know, what we were trying to do is get high fashion, which is, which is not for the masses. High fashion is for a very small, small amount of people, but explain it to people. So that was our dichotomy. But in it, what, by doing that, what we did was we were able to get some of these bigger brands and then combine them with you know these more luxury brands. And there was a payoff for both sides. The luxury yeah. got to perhaps the more well-known and spin-off. And the, yeah. and, the, and the big big mass brands got to be considered a bit more luxury and high end by association. So there was a, it was a payoff for both sides um, that, that we kind of figured out in our format. And, um, you know, it, it really was pretty game changing. You know, this was pre-social media. There was no social media, no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter, nothing. You know, MySpace wasn't even around yeah. when we started it, right? So this was really early days. Um, and I remember when, you know, Twitter first started and I remember when Tyra was on it and she was like talking to us and said, look, I've got 40,000 followers. Can you imagine 40,000 people are following me? You know, like that was some crazy big number. And we yes. were all like, my God, 40,000 people. Like, what does that even mean? You know, like, yeah. what, what are they doing? And, you know, so now I'm sure she's probably got 40 million followers. <laughs> right. yeah, but it's sort of one of those things where you know, the, the world was very different. And in many respects, I think that reality television was a precursor to social media. It yeah. showed people on mass that people like to see behind the scenes. They like to see mm. the making of. They like to see the sort of authentic realness and not just the polished finish. And a lot of magazines mistakenly made the mistake of assuming that everyone just wanted to see models in the final, final, final product. Yeah. And you know, and whereas sort of the vogues of this world didn't take shows like Top Model very seriously initially, they, you know, it took them about 10 seasons before they realized when our numbers were incredibly high, we were sort of number one rated show on primetime on a Wednesday evening. Um, and we were syndicated. So we were off, you know, we were being viewed in over 53 countries with our American version. And we had the format was in 150 countries around the world with a global audience of over 100 million people tuning into Top Model every week. You know, we were a huge television sort of behemoth at that point. Yeah. And of course, then Vogue was like, oh, we want in. So ironically, Vogue got in when we were not really in Vogue, but when we were sort of coming out of Vogue because they, you know, but they missed the, 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 that sort of bucket. But we were delighted because we were like, oh, my God, now we're all actually in Vogue. And so we, you know, Italian Vogue became the magazine sponsor. Yeah. Andre Leontali, editor at large of Amer American Vogue, became a judge. Um, and we got these, you know, major people to be on the show. And, and it was sort of midway, 10 seasons deep that that happened. So it was, uh, you know, quite game changing, really, all round. And, you know, they were a little late to the party at Vogue, but, you know, 
that being said, you know, it, it was fine for us. And, you know, we, we, we loved having them on. Absolutely. So as you're going through it, once again, the show's growing with the immense amount of popularity and there just becomes a time where it's parting of ways. So talk a little bit about just getting over that. And I think, you know, once again, a person listening might be an ex-athlete, right? And there's a part of you that I think we tie a piece of who we are, our identity to the things that we've accomplished. And so all of a sudden, when we have a shift in what the normal has been, sometimes it's tough to be like, well, did I lose a part of me or how do I cope with that? So talk a little bit about that season of life for you there. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's like so many things, you know, life is got full of chapters. And yeah, you know, it, when one thing ends, another begins. And, you know, it's, I, I was also got married during this time, I was also having children during this time. And, um, you know, I had two kids by this point. So my life was radically different. One of the things I always managed to do was lead a very separate life to the show. Yeah. So a lot of the characters on the show got very wrapped up in all aspects of the show. And it was their life. Yeah. It was never really my full life. And, mm. and I managed to separate it quite carefully um, so that I led a very separate life. And I was also never put my camera down. So I wasn't like all of a sudden, I'm now a television personality and that's what I do. Yes. I was a photographer who happened to be on television. Yeah. And so it was very different, you know, what that felt like, what that looked like. And I was always continuing to do, you know, shoots for magazines, for campaigns, and I was doing other stuff. So when it, when it obviously came around in season 18, after season 18, season 19, they did not renew my contract. And they said, look, we've had you for 18 seasons. You've been amazing, but we're going in a different way. Although it was very hard and kind of slightly heartbreaking because we were like, oh my God, we know what are we going to do? Or what's this going to look like? I quickly sort of turned around and, and sort of put the word out to people. And I actually threw a party. I threw, it was, you know, I threw a big party at Soho House in New York. And I announced it to the audience that I had been basically removed from my job as a thing. And I think a lot of people were like, huh? Like, you know what? <laughs> right. But within one week, one week of that happening, The Face, um, a new show on Oxygen, which was on NBC, that it was hosted, well, it was not, I was hosted by me actually in the end, but that was being, the star was Naomi Campbell. Yeah. Um, it was a new fashion show and they were looking to someone to host it, they came to me and said, would I be interested in hosting it? So within a week of leaving Top Model, I got the job of hosting my own show with another supermodel, Naomi Campbell, on another network, equally big, because I went from CBS you know, and, and CW to NBC and Oxygen. Yeah. And um, it was even more lucrative than Top Model. And I got <laughs> to do my own thing. And I got to do that for several years. So that, that was something which was, and it then made me realize, huh, I can do this myself. I don't have to work for other people. And, um, you know, I started producing my own shows too. So I produced a show yeah. called The Shot on, uh, um, on MTV and, and have gone on to do other shows like Top Photographer and, and, and several other ones. And I've got a new show out right now with my wife and sister-in-law called The Chin Twins, which was on the Design Network. So, I, you know, I moved into television production amongst other things as well. I love it. Yeah. Well, when earlier when you were telling that story about, yeah, we were doing a photo shoot, a photo shoot and Naomi Campbell was there. I was like, oh, well, she's going to come back into play later on in the story. So I love it. So for you, you've also become an author and you've been able to publish uh, a few different books. So talk a little bit about how books came to be and what the, uh, I guess, motive and the desire behind those were. You know, I think it's like so many things in life, you know, there are things that come and go and there are things that lay around and sit there and, and you know and one of the great things about taking photographs when you print them 
uh, because we live in a digital world and photographs often don't get printed but when you do print them they you know and you frame them they can often be in frame forever or they can be they're sort of immortalized moments that are fantastic and they sort of they're there on mantelpieces you know everyone has their wedding photograph or their picture of them as a kid or their picture of their pet grandparents or whatever it might be there's some major photograph in the house normally that is you know something that's permanent fixture yeah and you know a book it's sort of one of those things. It's a permanent fixture. And in a world yeah. where things are so fleeting, it is rather nice to have something permanent. And you know, I wanted, I, I, my first book was a sort of how to, and it was about, you know, it's called the beauty equation. And it's about self-reflection and, and understanding that true beauty comes from within. And that despite how pretty you might be on the outside, if, you don't, if you're not really a fascinating person on the inside, then, you know, you're not really going to become amused and successful or, and, and, and considered to be really beautiful because ultimately I believe that, you know, you, you find someone beautiful and you fall in love with them because of who they are, not what they look like. And, and what they look like, by the way, fades and, and, what, <laughs> and how they are on the inside grows. So yeah. it's sort of one of those things where you know, understanding that and really focusing on that. And, and so I wrote a whole book about that and, you know, to see if I have a copy of around me, anywhere near me, I don't. But, um, you know, and then I went on to write another book, which was a more of a coffee table book um, called Models of Influence, which has some of my own pictures, but also is a, a history of the modeling industry and who I believe women that were actually pivotal in changing people's opinion on beauty. And it was really a tribute to so many of the amazing women I've met in my life um, in the modeling industry who yeah. had done extraordinary stuff. And I sort of, in the forward, I talk about my mother and my grandmother and what they had done. And and they kind of launch into you know, these models who, in my opinion, are the true supermodels, the, the models who actually changed the business itself and changed our opinion of beauty, you know, and, and you know, and, and, and really in that, as a result of that, um, made women the world over realize their worth and what have you. So it's, it's kind of a cool book. And that went on to become a New York Times bestseller. You know, but one of the things, too, was that I suddenly realized that if you put your mind to it, there's very little that one can't do. If you, yes. if you if you want to do it and you know so I, I you know i quickly sort of thought to myself back then after doing the first book well what else do i want to do yeah well, what else could i do and you know and i i had a job as a photographer shooting for a catalog um that was that it was furniture a furniture company that was very successful one of the biggest furniture companies in the united states called art van and i remember mr van one point saying to me so nigel what's your vision for the next season of our furniture what should we be shooting for the catalog what would you like to do for the cover and all this sort of stuff in a creative meeting and i had and i sort of at that point just threw the idea out i said well you know mr van art if i if i really could do what i really wanted to do i'd have my own furniture line and he looked at me almost as if that was the most preposterous idea of all time and said <laughs> um he's like what are you talking about i'm asking what are we what, who, what how are you going to shoot our collections yeah and i said i know i know i said but you asked me what i wanted to do and I'm like, uh, I wanted to do that. And, and I said, but then I went back to it and, and, and I kind of just dropped it. And a year later, he called me up again and I was working for him this whole time. And he said, you know, that conversation we had a year ago where you said you wanted to design your own furniture line. And I'm like, yes. And he said, well, I've been talking about it. We want to do our own celebrity line at Art Van. And we, we threw it out there and, you know, we, we already represent Kathy Island. We also already represent and have, uh, you know, Christy, uh, sorry, Cindy Crawford's um, yeah. collection of furniture. They're both models. I mean, if a model can have a furniture collection, why on earth shouldn't a photographer? 
and 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 they they said well and I said well Anne don't forget a photographer looks at angles and a photographer understands texture and sees depth of field and, and frames the picture I said if you you're, you're giving a furniture collection to the model who's in my picture how yeah. about the person who designed the picture if I can design the picture surely I can sign the furniture and they were like we love it we would love to do this with you and I launched my first collection of furniture <laughs> with them um, several years ago and ironically uh, but fantastically Cindy Crawford was on hand to launch my furniture collection for me and wow. she gave me the biggest intro flew out for my opening at Art Van and introed and said I'd like to introduce my friend Nigel Barker who's got an incredible collection of furniture coming out and she did the launch for me um, wow. and it, which was an amazing moment and then her and I managed to do multiple openings for this store over the over the years and over the country um, and so that was a really fun, uh, you know, another adventure that I did. And, you know, then it then leads on to, well, what else do you want to do? Do you want to do a podcast? Sure. I'd love to do a podcast. I have one called the shaken and stirred show. You know, do you want to, you know, uh, what, what, what else could you possibly do that that's in this world? Is it film production? Sure. Let's produce our own shows. Let's make a documentary. Yeah. Let's shoot a feature film. Let's do other stuff. And it, you know, and it sounds daunting, but actually you know, the learning process part of it is the fun part and it keeps yeah. it, you very sort of fulfilled and, and active and, and what have you. And, you know, and, and so that really became my motivation along with sort of philanthropic work, which, you know, ends up really being something which you can, you know, really express yourself and, and, and help the world at the same time. It's a way of really sort of digging deep, making a difference and feeling like you're doing something that's worth it. It's not just about you personally, but about the world at large, which is far more fulfilling and gratifying. And, you know, and, and, and many of these organizations, certainly from a photography standpoint, need content to express who they are and, and to demonstrate who they are. And so, you know, as a filmmaker, it was a, something that was very useful and, and very fun to do. So we got to travel the world with all kinds of organizations like the Humane Society, the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatrics AIDS Foundation, uh, Adeo Foundation in Haiti, and you know, create films in the Arctic, create films in Haiti after the earthquake, before the earthquake over in Haiti, you know, to going into Tanzania and, and shooting film about uh, you know pediatric AIDS and you know and all kinds of extraordinary things that we got to see and do, which are completely outside of fashion, but um, but, but we're storytelling. And yeah. I think that's what it leads back to. It leads back to the fact that as a creator and as an individual, we're all fascinated with the narrative. We're all fascinated about the story. And there's a story in everything. And so it's a question of how you're going to tell that story. It's not a question of the medium, because the medium can change. But mm. the storytelling is the powerful part. And that was, I guess, what I suddenly realized that I love to do was to tell a story. So you know, I've done everything from make skateboards with Shut NYC to have my own fragrances with Demeter to create my own photo booth you know to you know you name it we've done all kinds of crazy stuff over the years you know i've had my own clothes i've done um my own furniture we've done books podcasts shows yeah. you know we've kind of you know, spanned the whole gamut of stuff and and we're still thinking of new things to do so it's uh, it's exciting you've been a pageant judge i mean you've done it all you've done it all now something that just as you were kind of talking there, that just kept coming out to me though, is it seems like everything you do is focused on the other person, right? It seems like very little is, 
well, what can I get from this, right? I mean, you as a photographer, hey, how can I make them feel comfortable? Uh, you being on a TV show, how can I help the show be successful? You getting involved with, I know Special Olympics is a big thing that you're championing. You know, how can I help that organization out? So how do you continuously put others before yourself and serve others? You know, my father taught me a story when I was very young um, that stuck with me my entire life. Yeah. There's, there's only one difference between hell and heaven and i'm like well you know he, and he and he's I was like well, what, what is that he's like well you go to hell and you see a table and it's full of all the most amazing food on the planet it's the most incredible array of the most delicious things yeah. and he said there's all these people sitting around it and they're all starving mm. and he said there's a table next door and it's heaven and it's all the same food all the same things most amazing food you can imagine. And everyone there is happy and, 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 and full and enjoying life and chatting. And he said, when you, he said, envision this, everyone has in their hand, very, very large cutlery, mm. massive knives and forks, huge knives and forks. He said, the problem being is that in hell, everyone is so selfish that they won't feed the other person. They will mm. only feed themselves. And the wow. knives and forks are so big that they can't get them in their mouth. But in heaven, Everyone is taking the food and saying, can I serve you? Wow. Can I give you some food? And as a result, everyone in the, in the table is thinking about the other person. And as a result, everyone is happy. Everyone is full and everyone is enjoying all the delicious loveliness that the, the, the table has to offer. But in hell, with all the same stuff, but when you're selfish and you think about yourself only, then you have nothing. But mm. if you think about others, you have everything. And literally that story stuck with me from a small boy onwards. And I, it's, you know, ultimately the pleasure is in the giving far more yep. than it is in the receiving. Yes. And it's a very common, you know, expression in the East uh, and in Asia to do that. And, and, I, and I feel that there's so much truth in it. Yeah. Um, and even if it's selfish, at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's an incredible thing to when you do something for someone else, you have a kind of a right to stand up straight and walk up and feel proud. Yep. You've made a difference. You've tried, you've really tried and to, to help um, versus just thinking about yourself. And so that's just the way I like to lead my life and I, like, and I feel better about it that way. Absolutely. Well, Nigel, I wanna say thank you so much for being on the show today and just sharing your story. As I promised at the beginning, what a fascinating human. The, uh, the only promise that you have to make me is that uh, you're going to do this again with me in like, I don't know, as fast as you do really cool stuff, probably 12 months, but maybe I'll give you a little bit more time, two or three years from now, so we can highlight all the additional things uh, that you've been able to accomplish. I would love that. Thank you very much for having me on. And, and, you know, good luck. This is a crazy time we're living in right now, everybody. And, and I, I know it's been a very, very tough couple of years for everybody. But at the same time, I think it's taught us a lot about who we are as people. And it's certainly for me in this world, it's taught me to also stop and smell the roses and realize just how lucky I am and how much magic there is right in front of us. And, you know, it always seems like other people have it better than you do. Um, but, you know, we have to appreciate exactly what we have. And I can tell you from visiting places like, you know, Tanzania and Haiti and, and, and places where they have literally nothing and people have oftentimes less than nothing. I've seen incredible 
perseverance. I've seen incredible strength of character. I've seen you know people conquer the odds and and smile and be happy with yeah. nothing at all. And that makes me realize that you know it, it's not the things in life that matter, but it's 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 how we you know handle the world we are in. And it's not how you fall, but it's how you pick yourself up. So let's all pick ourselves up and and, and make sure we put our best foot forward.